This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Pokemon Go! The Thrill of Dracula! Fear of Triangles! And the Wonderland Chamber! Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The rattle of dice... The benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive and the feel of shag carpet under our feet tell us that we're in the gaming hut, but instead of the thump of miniatures, there's the chitter of Charizards, because we're not paying attention to the game, we're looking at our phones, and they're full of (laughs) tiny monsters, and instead of being a weird thing... Uh, reminiscent of that great scene in Aliens where they're wandering through the ductwork and discover that they're right on top of us. Oh my God, they're right on top of us. Indeed, they are right on top of us, but for some reason, it's darling and engaging. We're talking, of course, about Pokemon Go, which odds are will still be being played when this goes on the air. Robin, what the hell are we doing talking about Pokemon Go? He asked the person who put it in the script. Well, because it's the biggest thing in gaming for... uh a long time, and it's something that uh, is having an immediate impact on society, <laughs> and I think it uh, illustrates some of the things that we always say on this show in spades, and it offers all sorts of opportunity for weird riffing, with the asterisks being that the uptake of this game has been so immediate, with so many players uh, now around the world, it's just... Uh, become available, I think, in the last couple of weeks here in Canada. They didn't launch here immediately because they're having <laughs> server problems. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what it was. It was ser- they didn't, they, the Canadian content guys weren't f- sorting through all the Pokemons and saying, these don't look very Canadian to yeah. us. Where's uh, the, the beaver m- one? M- Why can't you get had a beaver? To be, uh, had to be re-rendered. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's in full flower now. I went through uh, the uh, the cool neighborhood where I uh, shopped for uh, groceries the other night, and uh, uh, suddenly, after not seeing much evidence out in the natural environment of the game being played, as opposed to seeing lots of evidence on the internet, all of a sudden there were people milling about all over the place, looking into their phones, and uh, uh, so there's so many different spin-offs. 
uh, from this. So many ways that we can go. And uh, the only limitation on our riffing is that reality has already made a whole bunch of the weird things that you would predict would happen and put in a horror story or something have already happened. So uh, of those many uh, handles that we could uh, grab onto in order to begin to discuss this, which appeals to you most? I, I think what I what appeals to me about the Pokemon Go is, I guess, maybe what appeals to a lot of people, the notion that you can flip a switch or download an app and then suddenly you're seeing an extra layer of reality. It's very much like the Lovecraft story from beyond where the ultraviolet organisms, the ultraviolet ecosystem already lives among us. It, inter it totally interpenetrates us. We're being swum through by ultraviolet monsters, even as we speak. But as long as no one flips the switch on the resonator, we never know about it and they never know about us. But now we've downloaded this app and we turn it on. And sure enough, what we thought was just our backyard or our uh, neighborhood park or the art museum or whatever is suddenly overrun by tiny, horrible combat monsters. And, I just like that sort of Lovecraftian quality of, oh, no, this dimension always existed. These Pokemons were already, you know, littering the White House and the, and the Holocaust Museum and uh, the tracks on the subways. But you just didn't know about it until suddenly, you know, you put on the, the They Live glasses or you or you flipped on the Tillinghast resonator. And here they are. I like the interpenetration nature of these horrible monsters, which, of course, are actually horrible monsters, but because of dimensionality they're compressed down into these sort of little cute fractals but if it's like if you looked at a iceberg and all you see is the tiny glittering tip and you're like oh look at that a lovely diamond and you reach for it and of course you're on an iceberg and you have the bottom stove out of your boat right and so uh if you're making this a plot line your question is are the game makers complicit in hiding the true reality of these ultra terrestrials or is it just that somehow inherent in the nature of the Alta Terrestrials that even through this app, we can only initially perceive them in their cute form until things uh, go awry? So the possible reasons to uh, discover sinister Alta Terrestrials and hide that from us, of course, is, is that you think, uh, you know, in a sort of a fear itself, uh, minions of the outer dark sort of way, that you're the exoterrorist and you found uh, that if you get everybody engaged with these uh, demons first, that it's much easier to schedule your full-on demonic invasion where they can not just be seen, but begin to interact with us and, and affect us. So naturally, if they uh, looked like Thea's demons, we wouldn't go and play the game. We would be tipped off. The other possibility, though, is that they just want to make the huge amount of money that the uh, companies behind this is really making. What, what could be their motivation, life. Robin? What, what could possibly be their motivation? What could possibly be their motivation? And so that gets you into the, the, uh, the shark and jaws phenomenon where they, uh, you know, they know there's a shark, but it's bad for tourism. So they've, you know, they've done their internal studies and those have been buried. And then, and then there's a whistleblower or two that you, as the uh, player characters have to get to, to get the information to, discover the imminent invasion or it's like in uh, the laundry files by charlie strauss where the um uh, uh, computer coding uh can uh because it, it it sort of hyper compresses mathematics it acts as a potential gateway for uh great old ones and, and mythos monsters you know hounds of tendalos and such and so somewhere some coder in uh, nintendo went into a fugue state and coded up an entryway into tendalos and because of the way that the mathematics expressed when the hounds and the ultraviolet monsters come through, they are expressed as Pokemon forms because that's what the 
program constrains them to to appear as. You know, when the medieval necromancer says, you know, come not in that form, come as Charizard, he's collectible, um, that kind of thing. And and so uh, this guy's down, you know, just you know, sweating um, uh, Red Bull out of his veins at this point, and his his brain has basically been cored open, and he's just tapping away, keeping the the, the drives running, and uh, inhabited by some sort of horrendous piece of Daleoth or something. And then um, uh, the guys at the at Nintendo don't even know. They're like, oh, good. He, he cracked. He finally cracked the the problem that was keeping this off of everyone's phones for years and years. And now we can release it. And, you know, the mayor of Amityville maybe, maybe doesn't even know it's a shark. It's just that the, the guy in the basement sort of got taken over and he's the conduit. And, and you have to sort of not just convince Nintendo that, no, you're actually endangering all mankind with your billions of dollars. But also you have to sort of get down into the labyrinth, uh, which is, of course, full of you know, shifting virtual realities because the, the, he's been coding so long that he's broken down all the barriers at the center of this giant, I guess, is it Tokyo? Where's Nintendo based? Is it Tokyo? Uh, Nintendo's in Tokyo, but the, the company Niantic, I think, is in, uh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. All right. So you have to go to Silicon Valley and, and, um, uh, go, well, it wouldn't be a gigantic skyscraper then. It's just going to be a boring beige building, I guess. <laughs> No, no, it's a boring beige building in reality, but if you have the app, it's the giant, you know, dark tower, horrific, uh, tower of Koth, uh, yes. from the borderland of the dreamlands. Yes. You, you look through the app and you see what San Francisco would look like if its zoning regulations weren't ridiculous. Right. Well, if it also wasn't subject to Richter seven earthquakes every 30 years. Well, that, that too. <laughs> yes. In fairness to San Francisco, it's not just that they're hippies and losers. It's also that God hates them. <laughs> Well, San Francisco is no longer offended now that you've said yes. that. <laughs> um, another, while we're filing the uh, serial numbers off of intellectual properties, of course, another option would be to rip off Last Starfighter, where the <laughs> is it really uh, an option, Robin? <laughs> yeah, why not? All right, uh, you uh, where they're looking for the kids who uh, have the innate ability to to collect and uh, 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 gather all of these cute monsters, and then you're going to use them and send them. Uh, into the dreamlands or uh, some other dimension, the outer dark, in order to combat the real demons. And so you're looking for those qualities that you need in the uh, future demon warriors. And so that gives you kind of your premise for your uh, modern weirdness campaign, is that you've all proven to be the champion uh, Pokemon players. Uh, you know, they have statistics and metrics, and they can measure every possible thing. And so they've, out of millions and millions of players, they found the uh, four to seven people <laughs> who are the uh, harbingers of the, the great battle to come, and they're your player characters. And so that explains why you're uh, now uh, hunting real demons and, uh, you know, you're, you're binding uh, demons in order to fight other demons. Now, of course, there's all sorts of plot lines that you would uh, think to do that have already been done. You've had uh, people have been robbed by being uh, lured through a poker stop. Almost right away, someone uh, discovered a, a dead body uh, while hunting uh, for Pokemon. So that's your uh, cold open of uh, Law & Order uh, Special Victims Unit next season. I think that one's still there, right? You think in next season or you think 18 months from now? Well, they're pretty fast. It'll be late in the season, but they, right. they get them in there pretty so, quick. So, so, it, so, so, the, so the cycle goes, thing actually happens, the internet notices it, Law and Order notices it. The New York Times notices it. Is that is that that the cycle now? Yes. Well, the, okay. Law and Order has a longer lead time, <laughs> right. right? They still got to rewrite a script yeah. to fit Pokemon in at the mm -hmm. at the beginning. 
But the, the energy of Law and Order is that, you know, nothing, the scenes don't have to match up the way they do on any other show. Right. So you can <laughs> throw that in there. And uh, allegedly, we have the first Pokemon murder. The story is from Honduras, and the story was in a British newspaper, and uh, it turns out to contain a lot of speculation. So I don't think that's Well, there's to... a city in Honduras where people are just being murdered like all the time. I forget yeah, the name of it. It's, it's Honduras, yes. people. You don't need to <laughs> yeah. drag Pokemon into it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it was one of these things where maybe they were like, well, what makes your murder different, you know, Jose? And it's like, I did it for Pokemon. All right, fair enough. Now, now it can get in the, in the newspapers. So, um, so there was a murder over Pokemon. Was it like two guys from opposite gangs were both following Pokemons and they met, or was it, they were murdering over, uh, over the rare Squirtle or something? All it is, is two guys, Went out to play Pokemon, and one of them was murdered. Well, that, so, that could have just been... That, they uh, could have gone out for thin. milk and murdered each other. That's that's a terrible hook. Robin, you have to improve it when, when you steal it. Yes, exactly. Uh, but it's it's fairly easy to, to lure people uh, to a particular location, because what you can do in the game is you just spend, uh, you know, just like a, a dollar and a bit to mm-hmm. uh, create a spawning zone for Pokemon wherever you are, and then people come to you, uh, which to switch gears a little, is presumably something that every hobby game store worth its salt is already doing. Yes. You know, in terms of an advertising, you know, return on investment for advertising, something that will actually bring people in your neighborhood to your physical door for a dollar <laughs> is, is pretty astounding. Uh, and, of course, the company can afford to do that because there's the number of people spending a dollar on that is massive enormous. And because they actually benefit from the network externalities of people adding Pokestops. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, presumably, uh, there are already retailers who have your, get your analog Pokemons while you're here mm-hmm. and are trying to unload the card game. And of course, this is an, an example of how something that once appealed to kids has sort of been, you know, it's been kind of a dormant meme for a while. There's, it's still a big brand, and there's cartoons showing up on Netflix all the time and so forth. But uh, now, all of a sudden, putative ad- adults have gone uh, crazy for this. And so, uh, I guess another question is... Well, I mean, keep in mind that Pokemon blew up. I mean, blew up for us in the North American game segment, like in 2000 and 2001. I mean, right around in that neck of the woods. So, yeah. the people who were kids when Pokemon was giant are now not just putative adults. They can vote. They, they can earn money. They are real, honest to God, real adults. And yes, exactly. so they have, so they have, it's not just that, you know, you know, 50 year olds are necessarily, you know, entranced with Pokemon, although I'm sure some of them are, but people who had the perfectly legitimate excuse of being nine when Pokemon came out, they, they're, they're, they're being called back to it because uh, they remember the joy that Pokemon brought them there in their innocent childhoods. And now when they're faced with a, crippling universe that is on fire it's just nice to go back and meet your old friends and i'm running out of pokemons that i know the name of so i'm going to say charizard again my apologies to all other pokemons <laughs> yes you can tell what demographic uh, cohort we're yes. in um and so uh, i guess the final question then is if we were suddenly approached to build a intellectual property or game experience onto this alternate reality concept what would we do with it? Can you envision a uh, a Trail of Cthulhu or a, a Knights Black Agents uh, alternate reality fun game? I think with the Knights Black Agents, I mean, you've almost got sort of the outlines of what it would look like in the Blade trilogy. Ideally, you would make the backstory better, but 
in the Blade trilogy, everything that's actually secretly a vampire owned uh, thing has one of those uh, vampire glyphs somewhere on it. And, and the fun of watching the Blade movies is to sort of look at all the incidental signs and and uh, license plate uh, bumper stickers and everything else and recognize vampire glyphs that the set decorators as the trilogy went on more and more ridiculously scattered through everything. And I think you would begin by saying, all right, if you're doing nice black agents or trail of Cthulhu, really, then there are these glyphs that the necromancers or the vampires put on, on their, on their places to claim them uh, much like in feng shui, they're claiming feng shui sites. And so that's what shows up in your, in your phone at first. And you have to maybe solve a puzzle or, or beat some sort of, uh, of contest before you can get into the next level of the game and begin to interact with other people. Maybe that would be uh, the thing, but I think that the, the, the notion of rather than there being uh, little bobbing, horrible monsters, uh, because it's very difficult to do that in a scary way in your phone, but if you can see a glyph or something and then that opens a doorway and then you're, you, you play maybe a more conventional game at that point. Does that make sense? Right. And, and what you're collecting is not creatures who go fight each other, but, uh, clues that you put right. together to form a narrative. In a Mutant City Blues game, you could go to places that awaken your different uh, mutant powers on the Quaid diagram, and then your uh, goal is to, uh, you know, interact with other people in a you know properly mediated way that then allows you to uh, find out what other people have which other uh, super abilities, and you can sort of uh, kind of meet each other and do airdrop, and, and if you you know. If you've got mental powers and someone else has flame powers and you meet up at a particular place that then allows you to get this other uh, bit of information and so forth. I think a straight up ultra terrestrial weirdness type game would be fun, too, though, that rather than being a glowy Pokemon that shows up when you look at a building or a street or whatever through your app. Maybe you see something and maybe you don't. There's like maybe a little slender man peeking out or maybe there's a, a, a gray alien is replacing one of the people that's in your in your visual or maybe there's a, you know, a big Bigfoot print or something. And so it's something you have to sort of a little bit of where, where's Waldo added to your Pokemon. And so you have to look at this at the picture you snapped and say, all right, what is that? Is that a thing? And then when you mark it, you're basically getting points with the big good organization that hunts uh, ultra terrestrials or keeps us safe from ultra terrestrials. And it lets your character in the virtual game, like XCOM, like level up and get extra powers because you've found, um, uh, you found the, the spore of the aliens. And so you're, you're able to track, uh, them better so that when you attack them in the video game portion of the activity, you, you have a, 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 you know, a better understanding of, of their, of their secrets and, and have extra, uh, lives or whatever. Right. And finally, have you heard of the uh, animal shelter that is run out of dogs because of Pokemon? Yes. And, and I thought that that was a stupid urban legend, but I think people fact checked it and it was a real thing. For those who haven't heard the story, uh, the uh, an animal shelter uh, decided that there was a, a hidden market of people who were embarrassed to be just walking around playing Pokemon. But if they had dogs with them, they could pretend they were walking their dogs. And enough people paid money to rent a dog for this purpose that, first of all, they were able to raise enough money to eliminate adoption fees. Uh, and also, some of the people who adopted those dogs were like... Or who rented the dogs. dog and I, we have a connection. Yeah. I'm going to keep this dog. So uh, they've now had to source dogs from other shelters, uh, which uh, is one of the more delightful uh, and less horrible stories of this, uh, the street finding its own use for things. And... Uh, as soon as we've told a shaggy dog tale, 
it's time to uh, step uh, through the next commercial, which may or may not have Pokemons in it, uh, to our next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. This, of course, is the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of one of us telling you to buy one of our books. And in this case, uh, I am still uh, working on a couple of things with long development windows, but you uh, have been bringing out uh, small, cool things in quick succession and uh, everything you do is groovy, but this one has a particular place in my heart because it's a book about film. It's a spin-off from the Dracula dossier Kickstarter, and it's now available. It's called The Thrill of Dracula. Ken, uh, how did you get inspired to do this book? Well, Robin, I don't know if you're familiar with game designer and writer Robin D. Laws, but he wrote something called Blowing Up the Movies as a stretch goal for his successful Kickstarter for Feng Shui two, uh, a terrific game. You should look into it. And blowing up the movies examines a number of films in the action movie canon in light of their potential for role-playing as well as also as film, because Robin, as you know, you can't talk about film without talking about film. That's one of your superpowers. And I saw that and I said, I want to do a thing like that only just for Dracula. And indeed, there is no book like that just for Dracula. There are a couple of books that are sort of like that just for Dracula, but there hasn't been a book that's Every appearance of Dracula in film talked about 
you know, in any way, much less uh, with uh, utility at the table. So that was what I came up with was doing the thrill of Dracula. Also, the title thrill of Dracula wasn't taken. There's a real lacuna in Draculosity out there, and I'm glad I could fill it. It's, both of those things are, are quite shocking to me, even the, the first one in particular. Yeah. No, the, the closest thing, there's a book called uh, The Romance of Dracula, which is written by a guy, but he only did like the, the really big names. He doesn't go through and do all of the the hammers, for example. He just does the 1958 Terrence Fisher one. So Right. Yeah. Well, it's unconscionable that you would not go through all of the hammers, but of course I agree. with blowing up the movies, <laughs> I was that was a broader remit. I was able to uh, draw from the whole range of action movies with an accent on Hong Kong action, but not just Hong Kong action, and uh, was able to therefore pick only things that I liked. <laughs> yes, and well. Also, things that I uh, I didn't in every instance know what the role playing angle on each of those films was going to be, but I was confident that I would find a different way in. Mm-hmm. However, if you decide to be completist about Dracula movies, some of them are somewhat dire. Uh, so in that way, <laughs> true. You, you, you took on a, a more um, emotionally daunting task. And surprisingly, the most dire of them all is not William Oneshot Bodine's Billy the Kid versus Dracula, but is Dracula 3000. Yes, Dracula 3, which is not surprisingly dire once you know that it stars Casper Van Dien, Erica Aleniak, and Coolio. That might have triggered... <laughs> people's radar that says oh that sounds sort of triply dire but the the tagline for this film is you've been warned (laughs) is you've been warned is in space no one can hear you suck um that's the tagline for that no it's it and and people right now who are listening who have not read the thrill of dracula are thinking oh that sounds fun i'll oh i can get that on my netflix i'm gonna we're gonna have a good time and we'll make fun of it no no do not do that it is much worse than you think it is. Ken did this so you don't have to. No, people. just read my read my little. Even if you don't buy the book, although you should buy the book. Come on, what's it going to kill you? You should go online to the Thirty One Nights of Dracktober, where I blogged about this book. Read my blog about it. You'll have had much more fun than watching it. Um, uh, and you can watch literally any other Dracula movie in the book and have a better time. And I include. Blade Trinity and absolutely Billy the Kid versus Dracula, although that's also kind of a miserable slog as well. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me about the... Oh, I guess we should answer people's other implicit question. We've <laughs> answered the question of what the worst Dracula is, and your favorite Dracula, of course, is... The Terrence Fisher 1958 Dracula, which is called Horror of Dracula in America, and uh, it is the one that Terrence Fisher directed with Christopher Lee as Dracula and with Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. And those three elements uh, are something that is not true of any other Dracula movie and almost by themselves should argue, you know, tautologically for that being the best Dracula. But it also reaches into the the core of the story, the core of the myth, presents it in a new and and exciting way. It's all tangled up with Hammer's weird love-hate relationship with the British aristocracy. Uh, so all the class uh, subtext of the novel comes really roaring out into the foreground almost in the film, as does the Christian text of the novel is very much foregrounded in, in the in the film. It's a, it, you know, it, I say Hollywood doesn't know how to make religious movies. Uh, Horror of Dracula is a really great religious movie, as well as being a really great vampire movie, a really great Dracula movie, and a feast for the damn eyes, especially, I assume, in 1958, if people had assumed that all horror movies were black and white and sort of um, uh, slow moving. And then to see that that beautiful explosion of Technicolor coming out with that great score and the and the 
I mean, for the, for the time period, really kind of terrific, even cinematography. It's a, it's a great experience and it's just a tremendous Dracula movie. So one of the things you can do when you start to watch all of the Dracula movies together in order, and you've sort of created a classification system for the different eras of Dracula. Do you want to lay that out quickly? I mean, the classification system is really simple. Um, there's what I call the first generation. So that's the 60 years after the novel. So it goes from 1897 to 1957. And then the second generation, which uh, coincidentally is 1958, uh, 60 years and one after the novel and is the year that the hammer Dracula comes out. So the first gen or the first gen of the first lifetime is the 60 years after the novel. And the second lifetime is the 60 years after that, which again, coincidentally leads us into, uh, you know, 2017. Now, one of the things that uh, you do is you trace the different ways that adaptations have changed what later adaptations then do with the Dracula story, so that it is not just a faithful version of the novel that you're seeing replicated from film to film. In fact, it's almost never a faithful adaptation of the novel. Uh, And, uh, I mean, how many films actually end with the fight on the ice, for example? There's the Coppola one, which in uh, which structurally is the most. Like- it's not the fight on the ice. It's the fight um, uh, at the uh, outside the the castle. Right. Yeah. Um, you confused me because uh, the movie Dracula: Prince of Darkness does end with a fight on the ice, but it's a different fight and it's different ice. The um the 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 ones that ended in a real showdown gun gunfight and showdown at the castle. There's Coppola's Dracula. There's the uh, Dracula that starred Louis Jordan that ends with a with a gunfight. And there may be one more in that in that list that that, that end with a proper gunfight. But that's that's about the only ones. And Coppola's right. Dracula is unsatisfactory on many other levels. Although yes, it, it keeps the structure and inverts the meaning. Yes. And really, that's an artifact of the fact that the stage play adaptation of Dracula, uh, which you are uh, no fan of for good reason, <laughs> yes. uh, has had a huge footprint on what later films have done, in part because it collapses the action and creates more of a unity of time and space. And so that makes it an easier adaptation to do, but it has a bunch of other ill effects. Uh, for example, Jonathan Harker is a drip yes. in the play, <laughs> and therefore is a drip in almost every film adaptation. Is there a great Harker in any of these films that you saw? Well, I mean, a lot of the Harkers also follow uh, uh, Browning, and uh, to a lesser extent, the play of of conflating Harker and Renfield. So you get a really good uh, Harker. And Renfield in, for example, the 1968 British television Thames TV Dracula from Mystery and Imagination. Uh, that's a really strong Harker, but in turn, but that's because he's also Renfield. So he's, he gets to play that sort of really crucial role. The, the Harker in Horror of Dracula is actually pretty great, except he's murdered like right at the beginning of the, of the movie, uh, by Dracula. And so he's a missing presence and Van Helsing becomes the sort of bold protagonist that Harker is, uh, in the novel. Right, and it's not surprising that adaptations almost always collapse what is an adventuring party <laughs> in the novel into one or two protagonists because, uh, you know, if, if we did a, a TV season of Dracula that wasn't that weirdo recent TV Dracula that's all about sustainable energy, uh, <laughs> it makes sense to have a, you know, a bigger cast of characters, but in, but film has trouble with the multiple protagonists. So it makes sense that the, uh, collapse occurs, and I guess Van Helsing is 
more obviously the uh, the go-to guy to turn into the hero. But it is a shame to see uh, Harker get such short drift through all of cinema history because of the uh, play and because of the uh, the Browning version. And is it the Browning one that uh, does the play have Renfield going to Dracula's castle instead of Harker? No, it doesn't. The play keeps them separate. Harker is still a drip in the play. Uh, Renfield is sort of the um, <laughs> the GM showing up and dropping ever more insistent clues so that the idiots in the play get it. But then it's uh, only Browning that actually conflates Harker and Renfield into the same character. Right. So in, in the Browning version... Uh, it's Renfield who goes to Dracula's castle to to make the real estate deal. Right. Uh, which sidelines Harker even more. Yes, although they have a, a note of that in Coppola, where Tom Waits' Renfield is the guy who gets sent first to Dracula's castle to sort of negotiate the opening part of the deal, and then uh, Harker is sent to close the deal, and that uh, Renfield comes back somehow and winds up being put in the asylum. It's one of the bigger departures from Stoker, uh, the the text of Stoker in Coppola. That's a non-simplifying simplification. It, it does. Well, it, yeah, it, it does that. It, it explains why Renfield is part of the story, I guess. But. Yeah, but, you know, he's part of the story because he's a crazy person near Dracula, that's why. Yeah, um, and the uh, I recent, uh, just now, was reminded by reading your book that I've never actually... Uh, put in my DVD of the Spanish language Dracula that was shot at the same time and used the same uh, structure as the Browning film. Uh, it has a somewhat peppier pacing. And what's really striking about watching uh, that one in particular, even even more so than the Browning one, is that, wait a minute, Renfield is the protagonist. <laughs> he's the one uh, who starts the action, and he's the one with a dramatic pull. He's the one who's torn in two different directions, and his... Uh, you know, he doesn't live to the very last moment of the film, but even it's his demise that then allows uh, Van Helsing to come in and uh, and finish Dracula off. Really, he's the the complicated character, and he's the plum role to play because he has you know an even showier role than than Dracula does. Yes, and in and in the uh, in in the uh, in Melford Dracula, the Spanish language Dracula. Uh, Renfield is even more clearly an oracular presence. He's like sort of the finger of God coming through the screen in a way where he's doing almost this Hamlet-esque uh, de- degree of, of moving the plot forward in his sort of mad soliloquies that a lot of it is even the same dialogue out of Browning, but because Melford is, uh, does a much better job directing, I think, and the actors get to sort of play off uh, what they saw Dwight Fry do, he manages, I think, to convey a b- both more ominous nature and also sort of that that monstrous quality of, of, of Renfield and the weird switching back and forth that, uh, because Dwight Fry sort of settles into the world's greatest maniac and stays there, uh, that you get, I, I think, a, a more nuanced, uh, Renfield also in, in, in the Melford version. In yeah, the Melford Dracula. The, yeah. the, and the, the, and, you know, this is no knock on Dwight Fry, but the actor in the, the Spanish one, I think, is, does an even more interesting layered performance. And because the Dracula in the Spanish language, one is the downfall of the film. Yes. He's not, the, the, uh, he's no Bela Lugosi. <laughs> yes. Um, that enables, uh, the, uh, the Renfield to, to grab center stage. So and it also, sort of- uh, makes their Van Helsing even better. And, and I'm a big, uh, Edward Van Sloan fan, but, um, uh, the, the guy that plays uh, Van Helsing, Eduardo Arozamena, it is able to, you know, sort of sink his teeth into the, into the part and, uh, and do a better job and become a, a, more worthy threat to 
Although, of course, th- their Dracula is is, a, is not a good one, but is a more worthy threat on the screen. So, uh, in search of a wrap-up question, what is the big takeaway from seeing these films and writing this book? What chain? What most greatly changed your perception of Dracula in cinema through the process of watching these all together and thinking about them as part of a not a coherent whole, but as an evolutionary tree of different adaptational choices. A lot of it is a, maybe a better understanding of how all of the different films that, like you say, feed into the, the, the generalized myth that it's not Stoker is the, as the trunk and everything else is branches. By now, there are a lot of really strong branches out there that have come, uh, from Stoker, obviously being the main one, but that have come from Hammer, that have come from Lugosi, that have come from uh, a bit of the mummy has the, snuck the in. A bit of the mummy has snuck in, uh, and, and elements like Vlad Tepish's wife, who is, uh, dead and is somehow driving the action that shows up with, um, uh, the, uh, Richard Matheson one with the Jack Valance was Dracula in, and then, um, showed up again in Coppola. And I, I think that as we see people trying to find sort of a, 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 a female entrance into this generally very masculine story that that, you know, that grafting is going to really take. And you can sort of see it playing more and more in. It used to be that you'd have to sort of just kick Mina up to the rank of full hunter. Um, uh, and then, uh, you lose, of course, the, the, the sort of the moral lesson of listen to those women when she's smarter than you people that Stoker puts into the movie, into the book. But you hopefully have already learned that in the 21st century. And so the, the addition of, of this female spirit in Dracula's past, it's hopefully it's not always going to be, you know, his inciting reason to go predate on Mina or Lucy, but maybe you can add, add her as one of the brides, the, the bride that's always rebelling or something like that. You, you, you can, you can add a, 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 that can be a really strong thing. The presence of the brides throughout is very interestingly underused. Uh, very seldom do they show a, a really major important role in, in the film. Um, only in uh, the Argento Dracula do, are the brides used as anything other than basically Dracula arm candy, which is weird given that Stoker presents them as uh, independent creatures with their own will that Dracula has to keep battering down on. So I think that there's a real possibility there. But you can sort of see these uh, things that are potentially going to grow out and become limbs of the great Dracula uh, baobab tree or whatever it would be. Now, Universal has an unlikely sounding plan to do a horror continuity movie universe, uh, which means they will redo Dracula. If they Do you know if they've started one already, if it's in production or if anybody's attached to it? Or I think I heard that they abandoned the attempt to do the direct sequel to Dracula Untold. And I don't know if they abandoned it because the guy whose idea it was left and the new guy is like, well, well, I know what my idea is and it's not his idea. Or if it's just that it was turning top heavy already and they had to sort of go back and have another think or if they wanted to come in via the mummy this time. But yeah, I think it's still sort of in that nascent stage. There may, uh, you know, I'm not in charge of Universal God. Uh, but if sadly. you were, but if what I would were, you want to see yes. in this uh, inevitable coming Dracula reboot? In theory, if they're going to reboot it into the modern day, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with Dracula 2016. I, I want to see a competent, you know, I want to see a competent Harker. I want to see a strong Mina. I want to see all the things that Stoker put in actually pulled through into the modern day in the same sort of way that we did with Dracula dossier. These taking this same concept of hunting Dracula and making it relevant to a world where we are indeed hunting down, you know, people who want to kill everyone in the night and 
asking the questions, does this destroy their humanity in the same way that Stoker kind of asks it about the hunters uh, in the novel and pulling that, that core out, the sort of uh, hunter hunted um, though the agon of now that we've gone through this veil into this horrible nightmare world of Transylvania, are we still part of the society we're trying to save? And they, and they, you know, Stoker of course has the lovely Victorian cap on it and uh, a nightmare came upon us seven years ago, but it's all washed clean and we have a lovely baby boy and look at him dandled on Van Helsing's knee and everything's cool. And we all worship Quincy's memory and nothing to see here, folks. Let's move on. But of course, literally no one has ever shot that, <laughs> that epilogue because everyone knows that it ruins the, 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 the dramatic moment of the novel, which is them standing around their dead American friend with, you know, you know, dead bodies everywhere and dust blowing in the Transylvanian wind and saying, is this it? Did we win? Are we done? Is the nightmare finished? And that's the great, you know, closer for Dracula. Yeah, f- films love uh, sharp endings the way that novels don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on that note, uh, I think it's time to have a sharp ending to this segment and uh, head on over to Commercial Town and then back to our third segment. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Chris Lydon. Raphael Popst. Gwendolyn Schmidt. Corey Welch. And Ross Ireland. Make sure the thrill is never gone by backing the show at patreon.com slash canandrobin. The beakers are bubbling, the Van de Graaff generator is Van de Graaffing, the Jacob's letters are going and something is being radioactive very quietly off in the corner because we haven't been fool enough to set a Geiger counter next to it. Indeed, we are having fun with science. And today in Fun with Science, we're talking about things that are carved into our amygdala before you even evolved. Robin, what did you and or God carve into our amygdala? I I don't know if a uh, conscious presence in this, but evolution seems to have uh, installed this really interesting, weird 
quirk. So there's a, a study that was done in uh, 2008 called Recognizing Threat. A simple geometric shape activates neural circuitry for threat detection. And you can tell from the unwieldy title that that's a real scientific paper. And uh, what a team of uh, neurologists, I guess, established. Well, let's hope they were neurologists. It would be a real come down if they were yeah, botanists. If they're just triangleologists. <laughs> so anyway, what they've determined is that the amygdala uh, responds to the sight of an upside down triangle that will light up your brain if you're uh, having a brain scan and they show you an upside down triangle. And uh, that's just such a weird quirky detail that I uh, thought that we would uh, discuss it. Now, there's other things the brain reacts to. Uh, humans are not fond of seeing snakes come anywhere near them. <laughs> For excellent reason. Yes. And your threat detection also learns. So there are uh, shapes that are obviously not due to evolution that we react to, like the shape of a gun uh, will create a sense of alarm. So we know that for a fact, and, and they sort of floated a theory to explain it, which is not the provable part, which is that an upside-down triangle must represent a shark's tooth. Now, I am not a scientist, but it occurs to me that, uh, really? <laughs> that seems like, odd. What? Are we only afraid of the upper teeth of the shark? Why, you know, the, the other, uh, a right-side-up triangle doesn't frighten us? And, and while it's good to be afraid of sharks, um, I'm pretty sure that we didn't evolve there in shark country, uh, but in the Kenyan uplands, which are relatively shark free. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not the expert. I'm not a kenyologist either, but I don't remember there being a lot of sharks in the Olduvai Gorge, um, or anywhere near it, really. Um, there, there, I think there, I know that there's sharks in the Indian Ocean, but it would be odd if the evolution only kicks in for, you know, beach vacation right. time. Right. Well, there, there is a theory, but I think it's kind of deprecated now that, that we spend a little time like weasels who became aquatic and turned into whales. There's a, there was a thought at one time that our, our hominid ancestors went through an aquatic phase, which would have exposed yeah, them. Yeah, because we're the, one of the only animals that can hold our breath underwater. So, why do you think the real story is, why do you think, uh, you know, with our vast knowledge of strangeness and elliptony and powers of making things up, why do you think we are really programmed to be terrified by upside-down triangles in particular? Uh, because it stands for vampire, Robin. I think that's clear. Uh, now, the is, this, is, for is vampire. the widow's peak or the fang? Because the fang is kind of kind of narrow no, the, and dangerous. The V, the, 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 the glyph. It's the vampire glyph. It's why it be, it's what the English language, as you well know, comes out of the Norse runes. The Norse runes come from Odin. And Odin warned us about vampires. That's what that V means. That's why the Romans put it everywhere is to terrify people. They, they use that instead of the U to mess with you. And so people would look up and they would see the Romans, uh, inscriptions there and it would say, um, uh, uh Senatus Populus Quae Romanus. There'd be V's all through there and they'd shrink back in terror at the power of mighty Rome. The, the V is the actual honest to God symbol of vampires. And I think that, uh, Zukalski probably knew that too. Uh, when he was doing the thing about the ancient languages that come back from Neanderthal time. Maybe it's Aklo. So how far back in our evolutionary, because obviously uh, in order for a parasitic organism to begin to exist, uh, the organism has to exist to be parasitized. So mm -hmm. uh, how far back in uh, the history of uh, the various homo species do you think uh, vampirism began? Um, I think vampirism, because vampirism, interestingly enough, the uh, Egyptian bat 
which uh, is now a fruit bat, but there is a very large uh, disease-carrying species that carries uh, blood uh, fevers, hemorrhagic fevers, and this is honest to God true. That species comes out of the uh, Rift Valley and uh, Mouth of the Nile, Mountains of the Moon type area, which, of course, is where we evolved. So we co-evolved with that hemorrhagic fever-carrying bat. And how triangle-looking are his teeth? Well, they're probably pretty tiny. I, I, I assume that their teeth are like most bat teeth and they're um, uh, little right. really so we're not talking one of these dog looking fruit bats this is a no I, I think I think that this is this these are um uh, these are they, they've got well maybe maybe there's a species with triangular teeth but the but the V's are in their wings if you look oh, at I it. see yeah and also of course the aclo symbol for V but man and 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 bat co-evolved there and at some point the the fell magic of of anubis or whatever opened up those bats to uh, vampirism and the and the uh, maybe some, you know, proto Homo erectus shaman, um, merged with the bats and became the very first vampire. And that is the, the, the trigger that sort of set it so off. So does that mean that we fanned out through the globe that we left Africa trying to get away from the vampires? Yeah. That's why we fled Africa is, is to get away from the vampires. And in some cases it worked better than other cases. Right. I think. And so that explains why the Neanderthals in, in particular, they would have created that rune because they had not been exposed to the vampires. They'd left previously. And so when we came mm -hmm. upon the Neanderthals, we must have brought vampires with us, and they were the ones who learned to uh, to combat them and became uh, aware of how to fight them. So does that mean the, the first Harker was a Neanderthal? Uh, the first Van Helsing was a Neanderthal. Oh, right, of course. The Harkers were all Cro-Magnons, right? And so the, he has to go into the caves and find the, the Neanderthal uh, wise man who knows all about uh, the, the glyph, and he teaches him. Uh, the V, and they can carry that through uh, the Cro-Magnon tribe. Also, uh, fire-hardened stakes, very handy. Uh, the fire-hardened stake begins, I want to say, right at the Homo habilis change, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, don't we begin as Homo erectus, and then they do fire, and the very first evidence of fire that we found is fire-hardened stakes? That sounds legit. Uh, sticks that have been rolled in the fire. And I, I, I want to say that's the evolutionary moment, and, I, and this is for real. I think I've read that this is the point at which, because obviously you can cook and therefore you can increase the caloric intake from food and blah, 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 your brain. But that's the moment at which we make the switch over into the, is it Homo habilis or Homo erectus? It's the one that we switch over into that sets us on the, on the glorious path to our glorious selves. And it's because of that, uh, fire hardened stake moment. So that was, we were able to fight off the, the proto vampires against the proto mans and, uh, and develop, uh, vampire technology. I think that's what it is. V's could also be, um, in addition to that, they could be the beaks of enormous, uh, birds like rocks. Yes. The, the, the terror coming birds. down to peck at us. Terror birds. Because another thing that people are conditioned to fear is raptor silhouettes. Uh, that's a thing that, that is, is true in most mammals for much better reasons than for giant people like us. But, uh, there's a, a, a degree of innate terror that people who've measured, uh, that maybe probably the same guy who measured the snakes, uh, measured raptors are the other one and the sound of a lion or tiger. Obviously that, that doesn't even need explaining because that's our actual predator. But the fact that raptors haven't been a threat to us since forever. I mean, the biggest raptor ever could not even carry a human child, much less a human baby, um, or much less a grown human with a sharp, fire-sharpened stake. But the notion that these giant beaks uh, terrify us means that there is some sort of extinct uh, rock 
or a griffin or something that used to come after us and that we actually drove that thing extinct back in the Olduvai Gorge times and killed it and there aren't any more of the giant um, uh, Q monsters. What do you think of that? I, I think that's a, that's suggestive, but I want to go back to the uh, idea of the um, coincidence of the dawn of cooking also being the dawn of vampire hunting uh, because yeah. obviously if we start to cook and have more calories and have a faster metabolism, we then have tastier blood. So that oh, has to be, there you go. And I like an antidromia, that. right? Like the beginning of, uh, uh agriculture that, uh, once you start agriculture, there's a benefit to you, but you also become uh, vulnerable to raiders. And so mm-hmm. that there's an even earlier version of that, that learning to cook, a, uh, enable us to, as a side effect, have a weapon against vampires, but it also made us more delicious. And so what do you think would have been sort of the uh, evolutionary response of the of the vampire? Uh, and I guess I'm positing here that it's, you know, a separate species subject to evolution rather than a magical undead version of us. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty clearly uh, a sub- uh, because we uh, have evolution um we have to say that vampires evolved. That's it's fun with science, Robin, not fun exactly. with magic. So what do you think the, the sort of the proto vampire was that was feeding on us before we developed uh, barbecue and uh, how did that uh, improve the vampire afterwards? What were the changes in uh, vampire physiology that are becoming uh, tastier and more full of uh, protein would, would have uh, fostered? I think what it might have done is that might have been what kicked vampires from being big, scary predator bats into being quasi hominids. I think that when they start feeding on our tasty blood, it's similarly to when we eat of the of the cooked food and our brain capacity expands. The vampires are drinking in our our DNA and they uh, can uh, manipulate that in their creepy uh, little RNA factories. And so the 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 bats sort of begin to take on that human form. Because suddenly they're getting so many more calories from every, from every mouthful. And when they, you know, fall on a human, they can just have so much more leftover energy. And that leftover energy goes into uh, building, you know, stronger muscles. And once they build stronger muscles, they have to lose some of the power of flight. And all of that, you know, over millions and millions of years evolves them into a sort of parallel structure to ours. And that's why vampires are hominids is not because they're people that changed. It's because they're vampires that fed on people and co-evolved to keep up with their prey animal. Right. Right. So in the same way that a, um, uh, a remora that, that drinks shark blood, uh, be as, as it, you know, drinks more and more shark blood, remora has become longer and stronger and more shark like. I think the similar thing happens to the vampire bats. And then at some point, you know, there's some sort of, you know, mutant switch or something, uh, and the fully hominid type of vampire becomes the dominant kind of vampire, and the bat kind of vampire that was the original vampire either goes extinct or sort of drindles off into the standard uh, bloodborne disease drinking vampire bat that we see around us. Right, and those features could have started to appear at a different rate, right? That yeah. you wouldn't have automatically they wouldn't have developed all of these different bodily features. They would have. No, that's uh, Lamarckianism. It's been disproven, Robin. Right. <laughs> Every biologist listening is sobbing so loudly. Their family <laughs> is coming. What's, what's wrong? What's wrong, Karen? I, I can't talk about it. You, you mean these theories are made up? Is that what you're telling me? No, this can't be it. This was, this is all solid speculation because yes. for example, what is their incentive to become more human like on an evolutionary basis, right? There has to be some, adaptive virtue to that and Mm -hmm. the adaptive virtue of course is that 
if you look like a human, you can come closer to us yes. and get more of a chance to feed on us. So I would mm -hmm. say probably the first thing that the bats evolved would have been the power of speech. And faces. We don't even know where language uh, began. So this could be proto-language. Mm -hmm. um, and But it can be enough of proto-language to, you know, the bats learn to go, you know, in proto-proto-proto-proto-proto-Indo-European. Uh, they go, hey, come over here. I'm... I'm stuck. There's a branch. Help me. Help. And then you come over and... Well, we know that parrots can speak. Yeah. Why can't bats speak? That's just science. And parrot beaks, those are upside down triangles. Mm -hmm. yeah, so are you positing a parrot-bat crossover? Or is it, uh, I, Maybe I'm just saying it's parallel evolution. The parrots also are trying to predate on us, but they're much earlier in the process. They're like a window into what bats were uh, millions and millions of years ago, vampires. That they were... Like parrots. And they had big heads like parrots do, too. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're just starting to work on it now. Yeah. In two million years, there will be brightly colored uh, vampires that want a cracker and will tear your heart out to get it. Right, because that's the thing. We've, we've partially mollified parrots with our crackers. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they resent, of course, being turned into pets and imprisoned, especially in a round cage. They hate round cages. Yeah, they, they do. The parrots of Tindalos, especially. <laughs> if you have a, a glowing blue parrot, don't put it, or perhaps absolutely put it in a round cage. So, armed with this knowledge of the evolutionary origin of vampires, how do modern vampire hunters take this into account in order to uh, sharpen their game along with their stakes? I, I think, first of all, they have to understand that because of the vampire's strongly in imitative retroviral biochemistry, that, I mean, that's why garlic used to work and, and doesn't really anymore. Is because they, they start, they're like, uh, the antibiotic resistant superbugs. They're evolving, uh, protections. And it used to be simple geometries, um, would have the same amygdalic reaction in vampire bats that that upside down V does in us. So they feared the cross sign. And now they don't so much right, fear the cross sign. Right. Which used to be one stake held right. against the other. Exactly. It was like, I have two stakes. Get back. And that was a, a good evolutionary signal that, yeah, all right, we don't attack that guy. Let's attack yeah, the guy who only has... Yeah, two stakes. Let's go for the guy with one stake. With one stake. Or no stakes. Yeah. That would be ideal. And so, but they've but they've um, evolved resistance to that uh, thing. They've evolved resistance to garlic. They're probably evolving resistance to silver. So the knowledge that they're always got the shifting means that I think the secret to going after vampires is to go after them with the same sort of thing that you go after uh, retroviruses with. And I don't know what that is. Uh, I don't think anyone knows what that is. I think that's why retroviral diseases are terrible. But if you go to your very, very cutting edge retroviral research, I'll bet that they have some, uh, some uh, silver bullet. Certainly in the movie version, they've, they've developed some compound that they don't know what to do with it because it just tears apart retroviruses, but it tears apart the bodily host of them too. So you can't use it to cure any with anything, but uh, the Van Helsing foundation is paying for all this research. Right. So well, we'll it's keep gotta building be something it. to do with solar power, right? There's obviously their, well, it used to be that their tiny little weak eyes couldn't see yeah, the sun. Their extreme light sensitivity has mm -hmm. to indicate in some way that they're, they're vulnerable to that. So, um, yeah. so I guess we'll have to, uh, as more studies come out and more of this science becomes accepted, we'll have to revisit this issue. But for the moment, I think that uh, we've explained everything to the satisfaction of uh, evolutionary scientists and biologists alike. If not parrots. I think yes. it's unassailable. And uh, yeah. once our content is unassailable, it's time to move on to another segment.
When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons inform us that we have once more stepped into proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is a conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to hurl him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. Sometimes Ken tells us about branches of the time stream that he is considering creating, but in this case, uh, uh, Patreon backer Jacob Ansari asks about uh, something that you've already done and is part of our history, as is also sometimes our want. And the question is, why did Ken go back in time to plaster over the Wonderland Chamber, also sometimes known as the Blue Room, in Palermo? Ken, my uh, surface-level researches uh, didn't turn up a lot about the uh, Wonderland Chamber, but you've painted it over, so you must know a lot about it. What is it? Okay. Uh, Palermo is a lovely city in Sicily, as we all know. And it has in it a house on the Via Porta di Castro, um, which means the doorway through the castle. And it uh, is in a house that was built probably between 1600 and 1700. They they know it because it's uh, in a part of town that used to be a river. So there couldn't have been houses there from ancient Roman times uh, or Greek times even. And so the uh, the house was probably built in the 17th century. Some journalists moved into it, and they were going to knock down a wall to uh, open out the floor plan because they're terrible people. And <laughs> they uh, felt the wall, and the wall felt damp to them. And rather than saying, "Oh, great, we've moved into a house with damp," they scraped away at the at the at the plaster. And sure enough, underneath the damp plaster was a beautiful blue paint job, basically. And the blue walls were covered with what looked like Arabic writing. And so they uh, tore down all the plaster and the whole room is a glorious blue chamber. Uh, it's sort of this deep, almost lapis lazuli or cobalt blue uh, floor to ceiling, uh, lovely uh, trim in sort of uh, curlicue, uh, gold curlicues and then silver Arabesque writing. If you examine it, it's not actually... Arabic. It is something that looks like Arabic writing. It's called Rabisco, and it's a uh, sort of a thing that was done as decor because Palermo was occupied by the Arabs for about 300 years in its history. And even after the uh, Normans threw the Arabs out, they kept uh, there was a large uh, thriving Muslim community in Palermo because the Normans, not being idiots, uh, weren't going to burn down the tax base. Uh, the Vikings had done that plenty of other times. And by the time they get to Italy, they're like, you know what, let's just let's just take money from them instead of kill them. And everyone agreed that that was a better idea. So there, it was a very large, very 
multicultural city uh, for the next uh, several hundred years. And even after the Spanish took over, the sort of the legacy of uh, that uh, Muslim conquest was still and then and, and that Muslim uh, neighborhood was strong enough that there were still rich and uh, influential Muslims could come and go to Palermo, even though obviously Spain and the uh, the, the the Turks were at war. Uh, almost constantly over the course of the century. So is Rabisco a functioning alphabet or a decorative system that evokes Arabic? It is a decorative system that evokes Arabic. I don't know because I'm not an expert in Sicilian uh, decorative arts. I suspect that you could conceal Arabic lettering and Arabic language stuff in it. And indeed, one of the theories is that this chamber was used by a, uh, that the paint job is not, doesn't go back to the 1700s or, or the 1600s, but goes back maybe to the 1900s. And it was used by a sort of a pseudo Masonic order that, uh, wanted to have a sort of a Near Eastern feel or an Islamic feel to their rituals in the same way that the Shriners, uh, do in America. Right. And, and once we've got Masons, we're getting closer, closer. to something that requires you to grab a bottle of gray goose and head into the time stream. Right. The other, the other thing that's a possibility because the room does face East because it has uh it's a, it's a perfect square. And because uh, you can't put furniture in it because the doors are all in the way and the painting on the ceiling is of a lamp and it's sort of a, a, a very intricate overlay sort of uh, pattern. The notion is that it's also possible that this was a mosque like a, a house chapel, but a mosque, and it was built for one of these uh, rich uh, North African merchants, a Muslim merchants, who had a townhouse in Palermo. And so he built a mosque into his house so that he, in case there was trouble with these Spanish people running the place, he could stay inside and still say his prayers. And he didn't, uh, he, you know, he didn't necessarily know Arabic from anyone. Uh, because he would have spoken, you know, probably uh, uh, Berber or something. And he had a local artisan, you know, paint me something Muslim-y on the walls and the local artisan, because everyone was painting in Rabisco, just Rabiscoed it up. So those are sort of the two arguments. And in, in theory, it could even have been built by a North African Muslim and then adapted by a quasi-Masonic organization in the 19th century. Now, I'm hearing a lot of actual established facts with the, the ambiguity and mystery of real history. You are. But of course, Jacob wants to know the story behind the story because uh, you know the answer to these oh, I know the answer. questions because you went back and for some reason uh, whitewashed uh, those walls and covered them up. So uh, now's the time. Uh, now it can be told. All of our listeners, of course, have been carefully uh, security vetted and can hear the real story of uh, what uh, you were sent back into uh, time to avert and how uh, painting over those walls averted it. Okay. The uh, chamber is indeed uh, magically and uh, numinously significant. It's a large um, uh, a square. It points east. There's a number of other things that I won't get into, but it sits on what used to be a river. I think people who who know uh, how this stuff works can sort of guess. Like I said, that the audience is right. cleared for this. The audience is cleared for this. The other thing that you need to know about uh, Palermo is that it is right near um, Mount Etna, which is not just an active volcano, but is also one of the doorways to the underworld. Um, it's where Hephaestus had his laboratory back in the day. Uh, it's full of cyclops and monsters and, uh, and Tartarian giants and all manner of terribleness. It's literally Cyclopean. It's literally Cyclopean. And so 
Mount Etna is the sort of thing that if you are a magician of a certain, how do I want to say, adventurous disposition, and you have access to a magical square room that recapitulates the earth, and you've got it covered in your awesome Rabisco calligraphy, you are tempted, nay, I would say over-tempted, to try and close the switch and see if you can activate uh, that doorway that's in Mount Etna by certain rituals that can be done by studying the previously alluded to coded uh, inscriptions in the walls and um, uh, activate Mount Etna thus wise. Right. And that would be the great magical inbreak that would bring everything right. flooding back. You'd have Hephaestus yes. on Earth. And uh, uh, I think it's pretty evident why Time Incorporated doesn't want that. Yes. Do we need to spell that out any further? Don't want an army of, of, of monstrous cyclopes, whether they're um, uh, religiously uh, observant or not, frankly. Right. Just figuring out, you know, where they would, you know, their EU citizenship status would be an enormous hassle. And I think that you can uh, notice uh, that there was a uh, there was a big uh, eruption of Etna in 1669, and then there was a number of contemporaneous accounts of an eruption in 1693. Now. The contemporaneous accounts of the eruption in 1693 talk about all the devastation and the terrible awfulness of the uh, eruption, but when you go back and you examine the geology of Mount Etna, it didn't erupt in 1693. There was an earthquake in Catania that caused, you know, no doubt some problems, but no Etna eruption. So, I think we all know that the reason I plastered over that um, uh, magical uh, cube was to undo the eruption of 1693 that destroyed Palermo. Uh, a, Palermo is nice. B, all those nice people uh, shouldn't have been killed by monstrous uh, lava and or cyclopes. And D, after you... Sometimes the cyclopes would throw people into the lava, so it was sort of a 2 they, they would do all manner of things. They would kick them into the lava. They would throw them into the lava. They would roll them into the lava like you were rolling a burrito. They're terrible people, cyclopes. Don't believe the hype. Um, uh, the, uh, my apologies to the monocular American community, but cyclopes are awful. So, so the, the, what I did was I went back and I, you know, the ritual magician, uh, as is necessary for all ritual magics had engaged in a lengthy fast to purify his body of all, um, uh, ill effects before opening the doorway to hell, um, to Hades, I should say, use the technical language. So it was the work of a moment to um, uh, put a clear liquid into his uh, ritual water that he would drink and unpurify him, thus ending the ritual, also incidentally uh, causing the magical uh, backlash that gave him his fatal heart attack, uh, tossed him into the into the canal, painted over the wall so that no one else would get uh, tempted to do that, and then moved, went on my, my merry way. So it was to undo the devastating eruption of Mount Etna in 1693 that I did that. And I didn't go and clear up all the newspaper reports because I've got other stuff I got to do. Right. And what percentage of your uh, time incorporated missions are devoted to keeping magic from erupting back into the world? Um, I, it varies, uh, depending on whether or not magic has already erupted back into the world. So if, uh, it has, it's closer to a hundred percent. And then if it hasn't, it's, you know, 10, 15, 20, something like that. I mean, it's, it's often enough that you notice it, but it's not often enough that it's like every damn day and that I have to develop a second superpower. So, uh, who was this magician? Uh, this magician was a Frenchman. Um, he, uh, was connected, though not, uh, immediately so to the, uh, ring of poisons in, uh, in, uh, southern France and, and Paris that we've talked about previously. 
Um, he may have been in league with Utash Dojer um, and other um, uh, uh, traitors against the crown of France and or uh, serial poison magicians. Right. And that, that doubly explains why he would be willing to sacrifice Palermo. Yeah, he wasn't he, even he Italian. doesn't even care. Right. Let alone Sicilian. And he's a, and he's a terrible person and he's pro Cyclops. So did you uh, get to know him at all? Did you have sort of a bond like, uh, encounter with him before the, uh, the final confrontation? We, we did play a, um, uh, a rousing game of, uh, Tarochi before. Um, uh, it's a trick taking card played with tarot cards. Um, that was one of the biggest, most popular games in the Mediterranean, uh, in that era. And so, yes, I did, in fact, um, uh, meet him at a function, a, a, a civic function and play Tarochi with him, uh, mostly to gauge, uh, the degree to which I would have to overcome other magical protections he may have had. It was, it was a way of testing his defenses without letting him know I was testing his defenses. Because to all appearances, I was a hapless sunburned drunk. Right. Um, and drunk presumably on uh, a lovely local uh, Rioja or Tempranillo rather than exactly. Blanca, since you're you're in Sicily, right? So when, when in Sicily, do as the Sicilians do. With, I mean, not stab other Sicilians, but the rest of it you should do. Right. So, uh, is there anything else you learned from that mission that you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off for yet another week? Well, I learned that I should have used a better class of plaster because otherwise the stupid journalists wouldn't have discovered that it was covered up. I'm. I'm hoping that uh, the reset that I did on Etna will still hold. Oh, I guess we'll see. Um, if Etna blows up, then um, that's my bad, I guess. Right. So I guess this reintroduces the, the possibility that some other magician will attempt to uh... to do that. But right now, the um, uh, the uh, the people who live there, the the journalists who are like letting people, I guess I don't know if they're letting people stay in their house or just do tours or whatever. But they um, uh, they say that they will serve no alcohol in the room because they think it was a mosque, and as I suspect that as long as no one's drinking in that room, no one's going to get the bright idea to open up the gateway to Hades either. So, Well, I think our listeners can now all rest assured that nothing bad is going to happen because of the, the Blue Room. If it's being held by uh, people forcing uh, abstinence on its visitors. So I think we can all wipe our brows in relief and uh, consider this uh, yet another uh, well-concluded podcast. Next week, we're going to be back with another all uh, request, all demand episode. Uh, questions uh, from our Patreon backers continue to pile up. There's some really awesome ones uh, from people who need their uh, question asking priority access realized. So we're going to do that uh, uh, next week. So uh, join us again. Did you bring any of that uh, uh, Tempranillo back with you, Ken? May or may not have. Uh, well, bring it to Gen Con if, if it exists. If it exists, I will bring it to all of the all of the temporal liquor that I have left over. I will bring to Gen Con. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll uh, I'll see you soon there, and listeners, we'll see you uh, a week from now. Take care. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Prolicrain Press, Askfagelm, Dark Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join the ranks of such illustrious backers as... Noel Warford. Andrew Reichardt. Andrew Young. Chris O'Neill. Andrew Eichholz. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.